Hey, Courtney. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm well. How are you? It's Monday. <laughs> it's Monday. I'm just coming to life still. So, oh my God, look at how puffy my mustache is. Anyway, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, this it's is a podcast, Chris. I look you know, how no I one's gonna feel. See you. Oh my God. Except I got to look at myself. Yeah. So, um, we're talking about. I hope that they leave that in. <laughs> yeah, right. Demetrius Psychologis's uh, book, Ritual How Seemingly Endless Acts Make Life Worth Living. We actually have been trying to get Demetrius on the pod for probably about a year. His book actually uh, came out around the same time as mine. We both do kind of a cognitive science of uh, religion. He does it more than I do. I take a similar approach. We were sort of on the market at this same time a little bit and we're shopping for a publisher at the same time and so i'm a little jealous i will admit he's uh, i like his publisher better than mine and you said you heard him on audible yes he has an audiobook and i've been sharing it with all my friends because it's so good so i let's see why did i not listen so i used to have an audible account last time I had it I don't think this was on audible so I'm really excited to hear that it is and bummed that I did not get to listen to it on audible but I love that format I love it because I listen to all of my books you said it was really uh well done yes the audible was so good even just like the way he was reading it it was very riveting I felt like I was like at a TED talk like I felt like I was there in person as I was like running on the treadmill nice did he have a Greek accent he had a British accent We'll find out in just a second. We've hung out. Um, we have talked a lot about uh, some of the firewalking research that he's done in the past, uh, which we'll, we'll ask him about. Um, he worked with the Anastinaria for his uh, dissertation, which is a firewalking group to, uh, in Greece. Uh, very, very difficult to get access to. So at one point I was um, talking to him and one of his former advisors at uh, Aristotle University in Thessaloniki. Um, it sounds like I have these like magnificent connections, but all of our universities usually have some sort of like collaboration with some international university and, and try to set up uh, collaborations between scholars. So we actually have a Greece initiative and one uh, in 2017, I managed to hoodwink my way into a trip there. And I say hoodwink because I had no previous intention to ever sort of collaborate uh, with anyone in Greece, but I really, really wanted to go to Greece. So I found a connection and that's how I sort of got, uh, it, it was through Demetrius's old advisor there, I believe, um, looking at the Anastinaria, but they're very, very difficult to get in contact with. So I believe I ended up writing an NSF proposal to justify having gotten to go to Thessaloniki and hang out but it didn't get funded. Shocking. Oh, usually if you just I'm throw sorry. shit out against the wall. Oh yeah, it doesn't doesn't usually stay. That's right. You um, continue to amaze me. So you password share, you hoodwink your way into things. You just get cooler every time we talk. Well, okay. So the password sharing is because my wife has very good social <laughs> skills and knows lots of people who are like really positively disposed to helping us. So it's kind of cringe and embarrassing, except that it works. Whenever <laughs> anything goes wrong, she posts it on Facebook and I'm always like, oh, and then people help us. And I'm like, oh, well, all right. 
Um, and so I have lots, I owe lots and lots of favors. And then, yeah, like our universities have all these sorts of programs. We have a Cuba initiative. We had a China initiative. We had a Ghana initiative. And I am not above basically applying for anything that moves if I want money and trying to figure out a way to make it work. And a lot of it has panned out. So I advise folks, especially early on, apply for everything because it's good practice and some of it will hit. And you know what? It hits, it hits because kind of people apply. <laughs> so they end up with people. This was my MO during grad school was apply for everything. And um, even $500 grants that have like five page applications, because most people don't see the point in filling out a five page application for something they think they probably won't get. And so they don't do it. And so people who do it get it. Anyway. But thank you for those props on a Monday morning um, and allowing me to digress there with those well-placed compliments. Well, let's introduce our guest, uh, Demetrius Zygalatis. Uh, he's an anthropologist and cognitive scientist who, who studies ritual, music, sports, fanship, the kind of things that make us human. What I really like about his work and in general about folks coming out of the cognitive science of religion and I said this last week when we interviewed Ed Hagen, I love anthropologists who combine cognitive, psychological, and human biological stuff, because if we don't, it feels Cartesian. It almost feels Cartesian to say combining human biological and cognitive stuff, because cognition is biological. So I think in, and in, in this was, this was, I'm going to repeat it because I think I misquoted it last week, but it's a, it's a quote from Tim Ingold, who's a sociocultural anthropologist in the UK, who who basically accused anthropology of being Cartesian because of its split between biological anthropology and cultural anthropology. Culture is more willing to ask about cognition and what people are thinking, and bio tends to focus on physiology and anatomy to the exclusion of what people are thinking, even though, as I've discovered in my tattoo research, and it's obvious, but I sort of like had an epiphany of like, oh my God, it's how people think about stress that mediates how their immune system responds. And I touch on that because it's completely relevant to Demetrius's work on firewalking, where he's looking at cognitive load and how people interact, but they're walking across burning hot coals with bare feet. So there's an inextricable link between the biological and the psychological that he has been tackling. So a lot of folks have probably seen this work out there. He is a professor, associate professor of anthropology and psychological sciences at UConn. He runs a lab, he calls his lab an experimental anthropology lab. Uh, and he's also served as president for the International Association for the Cognitive and Evolutionary Sciences of Religion. Um, he used to be, before being an academic, he was a translator, photographer, and book editor. And of course, a waiter, as he says, but I think that was all actors, not all academics had been waiters. He's lived in seven countries, traveled to over 70. So we should bring him in. What do you think? Definitely. All right, here he is. Demetrius, how are you? Hello. At long last. Look at us. We made it. We made it. It's been what? <laughs> we were trying to do this for about a year. Babies, COVID, throats, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. your, ch you pro your children are probably all grown up since we started trying to like <laughs> together. No, I still have a three and a half year old. All right. All right. Well, hopefully everyone is is healthier this time around. I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Courtney Manthe-Pierce. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. 
you know me, uh, but I don't think I said my name when I came on. So I'm Chris. This is the Sausage of Science. We uh, introduced uh, a little bit about your work, a little bit of your background. Uh, but we start off every single episode. Uh, the, the Sausage of Science is a riff on how the sausage is made. We want to know how the science is made. But we start off by finding out how the scientist is made. So we wonder if you could tell us about your background how you got into, uh, you know, you transitioned from being a translator, photographer, book editor, waiter. I think that's a prerequisite to be an actor, not an anthropologist. But what led you to be uh, an anthropologist and follow this academic path? Well, I I guess I'll have to go all the way back to my, my childhood. Uh, you know, the kinds of readings that I was interested in, the kinds of heroes that, that, that I had. My childhood heroes were people like um, David Attenborough, Jane Goodall, Jacques Cousteau. I remember my mother calling me whenever one of these people was on, on, on television so that I wouldn't miss it. I was really fascinated by these people. And what these people did is that they showed a, a real fascination with the natural world and they were going out there. Um, they were bringing their personal experience into it and they were also bringing a scientific lens. And in terms of my readings, um, the biggest influence was National Geographic. I remember going to, to the city center and picking up the monthly issue of that magazine and being really intrigued by all of those initiation rituals that, that I could see happening in Africa and, and Amazonia and Papua New Guinea. So in my mind at the time, those were things that looked very exotic. Those were things that looked entirely different than what I was used to. So they seemed removed both in space and, and in time. They looked like relics to me. And I never imagined at the time that things like these could be happening in my home country. So when I realized that they were, when I found out about things like bloody pilgrimages happening on, a, on the Greek island of Tinos, or the firewalking rituals of the Anastenaria, which I ended up studying for my doctoral thesis, I was really, um, th that was a big realization for me. And I think this, in a sense, this is the same journey that every anthropologist undertakes, and also hopefully that our discipline as a whole has, has gone through. What I mean by this is the realization that um, at first, when we meet other people, when we're exposed to other traditions, we, we marvel at the differences. We're really struck by these differences because there's, of course, enormous variability in cultural forms. But of course, as we begin to, to study these people and to live with these people and to get to know these people better, then we gradually realize that what we share, uh, what we have in common is more than, than uh, those superficial differences. And I think in my own trajectory, that's, that has always been the driving force behind my research, to, um, to find the things that we have in common, our, our shared humanity. I love that. And I love how you talk about finding the similarities between people, because in anthropology, we do talk a lot about variation and how we're all so different. But to look at it from that lens is very fascinating. And it brings me to my next question. So you have a book out, Chris and I were just talking about it called Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. It is on Audible and it's amazing. I've been sharing it with everybody. You sent the PDF and I was chuckling because I already had a copy and I was like, I've read it cover to cover many times. <laughs> but yeah, so let's talk about these seemingly senseless acts. You've studied things like firewalking for many years can you tell us about the Anastenaria and maybe how their firewalking ritual makes life worth living? Well, first of all, to say that um, uh, I should say that these seemingly senseless acts of various kinds are uh, the stuff that makes us human. And that's as an anthropologist, that's the question I keep ask asking myself. You know, if you ask 
um, different scholars. And if you see historically what anthropologists have come up with, trying to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the animal world, they might point to banal things like bipedalism or, or things like tool making and tool use, which are not uniquely human. Um, but I think that what truly makes us human is our ability, our propensity, and in fact, our, our need to derive meaning from things that seem to have no intrinsic meaning, things that seem to be senseless. And these things include uh, arts and music and, and group identity and things like uh, sports. And of course, they, they include ritual. Now, oh. in terms of the uh, Anastanari, in terms of my own research, this is a sentiment that I've heard expressed by numerous people. And, and it goes like this. Uh, so when I ask somebody, why do you perform, let's say, the firewalking ritual? A lot of the time they're stunned. They just looked at me uh, and they said, well, that's just what we do. That's who we are. But then at the same time, pretty much every person that I've talked to uh, highlighted that this was fundamentally meaningful and fundamentally important to them, both for their private and their collective identity. And there have been cases uh, more than once where I've encountered somebody who, um, who perhaps had a health issue and their doctor told them that you're, you're, you shouldn't engage in this very uh, intense ritual because your heart might not be able to take it. And they still do it. And when they ask them about it, about it they, they say something like, well, the doctor says that something bad might happen to my heart if I do the ritual, but do they know what would happen to my heart if I don't do the ritual? This is how meaningful these practices are for these people. I love that. Being at a football school where we have a giant 101,000-person stadium right in the middle of town, uh, surrounded by statues that people come visit regularly, they dress up, you know, the the, the mean, and, and then constantly we hear things like, it's just a game, and why is everyone uh, so intense about the, the outcomes of these things? So, I mean, I, I intuitively get it. I also work in Samoa where people... Uh, practice traditional tattooing. It's super, super expensive. There are many, many reasons to uh, avoid stuff like that, to save money, to uh, save uh, health issues. But um, I hear lots and lots of reports um, like that. So I think you, we're, we've drunk the Kool-Aid and we fully appreciate uh, the message. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, to also sort of bring up, and you and I have talked about this a lot, is there's, there's a bit of a disconnect, I think, in uh, biological anthropology and human biology. There's not enough attention to uh, cognitive stuff, to, to religion. And even the way you frame your lab um, a sort of is a, is a bit of a paradigm shift, even though it's, it's obvious. So, so you've been working from the cognitive science and religion side of human biology and have a mixed approach to research that, that you call experimental anthropology. And it's it's not dissimilar to what others do, but that description of it brings uh, some of the aspects that have historically been associated with social psychology. It, it brings it up and, and I do it too, but I have avoided calling it that. So I wonder if you could be explicit and tell us like, what is your articulation of experimental anthropology mm -hmm. and how does that work? Yes, I like that you called it obvious because it's certainly obvious to me that this is the way scientific social scientific work should proceed. Why should it proceed in this way? Well, because if you think about it, the, the, the different approaches that we have to our object of um, uh, study between different disciplines, they're not driven by theoretical reasons. They're driven by practical reasons. 
So I'm, I'm a psychologist and I've learned to do lab experiments and that's all I do. I'm an anthropologist and I was trained to do participant observation and that's all I do. So very often we might be asking the exact same questions, but we go about trying to answer these questions in fundamentally different ways. And this is not only because sometimes you might be interested in different levels of explanation. That is fine. You know, neuroscientists, of course, are going to be looking for different things and asking their questions in different ways than cultural anthropologists. But you brought the, the, the example of social psychology, for example. Um, we're asking very similar questions, but the way we go about trying to answer those questions are is, is very different. And the worst thing is that we don't typically talk to each other. And as a result, we have this fragmented, um, divided view of human nature, which is, um, I think it's just a, a, a weaker epistemological approach. So my approach has been trying a little bit to have my cake and, and eat it too, but, um, but by doing something that I consider to be obvious. Um, so instead, for example, instead of bringing people out of context and moving them into a, a lab that can be sometimes sterilized. And of course, there's a lot of value in having control. Everybody wants to have control to be able to manipulate variables and do true experiments. But especially when it comes to things like ritual that are, that are deeply embedded in, in, in cultural contexts and, and specific uh, locations and, and temples and, and group settings that cannot be replicated in the, in the lab. Then what I've tried to do is uh, move the lab into the field. So try to introduce measurement in a way that is not going to necessarily give away the relevance of the, of the cultural context. And one implication of this is that, of course, you, you can't be an expert in everything. That is the practical, one of the practical reasons why um, people don't pursue interdisciplinary research, because it's hard and, and, of course, because we need specialization. You can't have interdisciplinarity if you don't have disciplines. So that's, that's all good. But at the same time, um, you don't have to be an expert in everything. What you need to do then is reach out to others who are asking the same questions or are coming from a different perspective and try to collaborate. This is not always easy. A lot of the time you will see that people might not be interested in, in crossing these disciplinary boundaries, but that's, that's fine. There's, there's room for everybody and, uh, for all kinds of approaches. If that's what you're interested in, then reach out to the, to the right people to, for you find those who want to cross these interdisciplinary boundaries. And then that then brings a process of you know, translation. We, sometimes we don't even speak the same language between disciplines. It takes a long time. It's hard, but it's also fun. In my, in my experience, it's always been a lot of fun working through these difficulties, working through these different uh, epistemological views and, and disciplinary lingos and, and idioms and being able to, to do something that hopefully will be greater than the sum of its parts. Well, I love your approach. And I think that is something that is so beautiful about our field is we can you know, collaborate with so many different people and try to figure out what it means to be human. Um, so that does bring me to another question for you about your research. Um, so speaking of actually studying people and um, you know, applying different lenses, what I'm trying to say. So you actually know in your book that firewalkers sometimes say that they felt calmest during their firewalk, which is amazing, but their physiological data indicate high arousal during that walk. And I know Chris has mentioned that he's had similar encounters with Pentecostal tongue speaking and tattooing and his own research. Um, so what do you personally think is happening 
under such circumstances? That's a great question, and it really exemplifies what we've been discussing uh, thus far. So if I went into the field and I simply asked people how they felt during the firework, then I would, I would leave with the impression that they're perfectly calm. That's their own impression. Uh, I, I don't think people are lying. Everybody in my field said that was their experience, or at least that was their memory of the experience. Now, if I only went into the field and, and conducted biological, uh, physiological measurements, I would leave with the impression that they're all uh, extremely stressed. As it turns out, both of these things were happening at the same time. So their body said one thing and then their, their, their mind said another thing. And I think there's great value in bringing both of these perspectives. So what is the phenomenological experience of somebody who is walking through fire and feels, or at least remembers being calm, but has 230 beats per minute? This I cannot know. And, and apparently, because people don't don't even remember, perhaps we, we'll never know. Um, but still, there is an important uh, um, social process that we're observing here, which otherwise we wouldn't be able um, to know what's happening. And what I think is happening here is that precisely because when people go through these very highly arousing uh, rituals, they seem to black out. My Spanish participants uh, refer to this as quedarse en blanco, which in Spanish is the, is the opposite. It means to white out. And we tested this. We looked at their memories and anything we, we could uh, confirm on the base of our video recordings. We have we had five cameras around the place and we saw that people remember very little of what happened. But then two months later, we found that uh, they had more episodic memories, more factual memories. Now, those memories were not accurate. But we think that what's happening here is that this is how these shared memories of participation are created. So people draw from uh, cultural models, from shared uh, schemas. They draw from each other experiences. And in this way, through time, their memories come to become more and more similar to one another. And, and that is part of what creates this, this bonding between participants. So both of these elements, the physiological arousal um, and the cultural content of their memories play a fundamental role. In this ritual. So I can really appreciate the, uh, the the comment you made about different disciplines using different language, right? So some of my co-hosts, uh, not Courtney, but Kara and Malika and I did a proof of concept study of comedy improv uh, several years ago to get at what uh, Durkheim called collective effervescence. And <laughs> none of my fellow human biologists, aside from me, I was trained in cultural anthropology, knew what cultural effervescence even was. So I did have to sort of school everyone on this and that it was a worthwhile pursuit, right? But it's difficult to capture what that is in any scientific test. And you describe um, you describe similar problems in a chapter actually called Effervescence and how you solve this. So, um, and, and what that includes is not just looking at the fire walkers, but the people around them, right? That that collective memory. So I wonder if you could if you could go further. You, you mentioned a little bit with the, the video, but if you could tell us about the mixed methodology used to uh, look at both the fire walkers and uh, the people they're with and what the sort of the implications of that are. So the way I often approach my, my research is, is by, by reaching out to people in different disciplines and just trying to figure out whether we're asking the same questions, as I mentioned. And this was, I was at the time at Aarhus University and I was I was thinking about this question, how could we possibly measure collective effervescence? And it was there that I met another um, graduate student or postdoc uh, at the time, Ufe Schutt, 
who was coming from the neuroscience of, of religion. And it was through these discussions that we, uh, we began to, to uh, narrow in on, on this idea of uh, shared autonomic uh, arousal. And both of us were at the time collaborating with a neuroscience institute, which was actually more than neuroscience. It was very welcoming to people from other backgrounds like myself. And we started talking to, to people like physicists, for example, um, or cognitive neuroscientists about the kinds of ideas that we had and how we were going to approach them and how we could possibly quantify those things. And, and at first, um, um, most of them didn't even want to hear about it. They, they thought that this was something that cannot be done in a, in a social context. They thought that some of the questions we were asking were not even applicable, that you cannot talk about synchrony uh, unless you have oscillators. Of course, the, the heart is an oscillator. So that um, when we brought uh, heart rates into the picture, that was it was easier to get them on board. And even after we collected our data, we had a very hard time analyzing those data. So then we had to reach to other people from ecological psychology to to see how do we how do we analyze uh, time series, you know, dynamical, uh, nonlinear data that are fundamentally different than the kinds of data that most psychologists typically work with. So it was a very long process. Uh, it, and it takes, you know, what you see is just, it's not even the tip of the, the iceberg, of course. It took several months of uh, fieldwork on my part. It took over a year of uh, planning in Denmark. And even after we did the study, it took a couple of years to, to publish the, the paper. In your work, you actually did a firewalk yourself which is amazing. I know you bring it up in the book and you say it was kind of sprung on you and you had to hand your camera to somebody. So can you walk us through that and just tell us what that experience was like for you? Yes. Uh, interestingly, so I had been studying firewalking rituals in, in many contexts. Uh, I did my doctoral dissertation in, in Greece studying these kinds of rituals. And then I also saw firewalking rituals in Bulgaria and in Spain. But up until I went to Mauritius, I had never taken part in one of those rituals. And there was there were good reasons for this. Uh, not getting burned was one of them, of course. But the the places where I studied fire walking, it, it was not my it just wasn't my place to firewalk. So in Spain, it's only reserved for locals. You have to have both your parents have to be from the village. So that wasn't even a question. And in Greece and Bulgaria, it's a it's a very gradual process and you have to be sort of invited and vetted by the elders. And so I would have to, to pretend to be somebody uh, I wasn't in order to, it, it would be inappropriate for me to take part in those rituals. So I went to Mauritius uh, with no expectation of, of doing anything like that. But as I spent time with, with the local uh, people and they were starting to prepare for the, the annual firework, it was going to be the first time that I would see it there. Uh, one day, Half jokingly, they said, "Well, how long have you been here? Uh, a few months. Well, now you're you're becoming a local." And I was I was careful to say, "No, I'm not. I don't want to pretend to be one of you. I'm here to learn from you, to to study your culture." So well, they cut me off. They said, "No, no, no. You're you're becoming a local. So you should do the firework too." Uh, I politely declined, and I and I explained that it was very important for me to be able to observe and take pictures and document things because it was my first time in that context. And uh, they said, okay, well, if you, time will tell. If God wants you to do it, then you will do it. So I just laughed at that and, and I said, well, trust me, God doesn't want me to walk on fire. But of course, uh, little did I know. So on the day of the firewalk, 
I was around and taking my pictures and, and notes and suddenly somebody tapped me on the shoulder and they suggested that there was another place that would be better for me, that would take better pictures. And it was, I was actually surprised because it was very close to, to the firewalkers. Uh, so I was happy that they would allow me to, to be there. And I started taking pictures and looking through the lens, you know, you, you have no peripheral vision, you don't know what's happening around you. So at some point there was another tap on my shoulder and I, and I looked up and uh, somebody said, stand up uh, and now turn around. And I turned around and I realized that the entire village was looking at me, expecting me to go through the fire. And that man just whispered in my ear something like, uh, now you will know what the fire is like. And all I had time to do was to say, please hold my camera. And, and then I did it. And what did it feel like? In many ways, it felt exactly like what people had been describing to me. So it felt like going into slow motion every single step. It, it's a very quick activity. It, it la only lasts a few seconds, but it, it felt to me that it lasted for minutes. I felt every single step. You feel the heat of the of the coals. There was one step that I knew was going to, to leave a, a, a blister, an injury. I was told that I didn't show it, and I tried not to show it because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be brave. I felt my peripheral vision uh, going blurry and me being hyper-focused. It's this sort of fighter pilot uh, response that uh, people describe, the state of flow. Um, and then suddenly you're, you're done. And it's only then that you realize that there are so many people around you and, and you're hearing all of their, their cheers and, uh, and their voices. All of that stuff gets uh, filtered when you're doing the, the firework. And of course, I felt my drowning rushing and I felt all kinds of things, you know, happening in, in my body. And, and I, I experienced this high that, that lasted throughout the day and, and probably beyond the day. So for something that is uh, as quick, it involves a tremendous amount of emotional arousal and the aftermath of that arousal is also very noticeable. And of course, as an anthropologist, another very interesting thing is that people came to me afterwards and they were asking me similar questions to what I had been asking them. What, what did it feel like and, and what made you do it and all those questions. Cool. So when I, when I work in Samoa with the tattoo artists, uh, cultural tattoo practitioners, they're doing something uh, stretched, maybe stretched out. I don't know if it, how, how much analogous it is, but they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they're extraordinarily religious Christian, but they describe the tattoo uh, experience to Tao, the traditional to Tao, as spiritual. This is a, as a spiritual practice. But I wonder if you can give us the religious background, the religious context. Uh, you've worked in at least three cultures that I know of on this, and so I assume they all have different reasons, but are they all nested in a religious context? And could you tell us a little bit more about maybe where it came from or what its significance is for them? Yes, they're all very different. Uh, so in Greece, there's a group called the Anastanaria, and they're, they are descendants of refugees who came to Greece after the exchange of populations that happened throughout the Balkans in the beginning of the 20th century, so present-day Bulgaria. And in those villages, there was this tradition among Orthodox Christians who were primarily focused on the worship of two saints, Constantine and Helen. And there's a myth about those uh, saints and how there was once uh, a church in the village called Kosti that caught fire and people rushed into the, the church to save the icons and they were able to, to walk out unscathed and the, the icons of the saints were unscathed as well. 
And so that's the etiological myth that points to the origins of the of this festival. Nobody actually knows how old it is. There have been um, ethnographic theories that place it in ancient orgiastic cults of Dionysus. There is zero evidence to support this. And in fact, those claims are connected to specific nationalist movements that ended up hurting these people because the, the church came after them, uh, accusing them of being pagans. And when I worked with them, that also meant that it was very hard for me to get information. It took me months to get people to open up. At first, they were happier to talk about sensitive topics like illness or, or sex than to talk about rituals. They would say, we don't talk about those things to outsiders. Um, so it took me a long time to, to be able to have these discussions with them because they had been hurt by, by what ethnologists had written in the past. They will, they're very adamant about this, that they are not only are they Christian, they are more Christian, they will say, than the others, because everybody else, we, we follow the same rituals that uh, ritual life that everybody else does, but we also have this painful ritual on top of that. So if anything, we're more Christian. In Spain, that was a very different context. Um, there's no doubt that this was once a, a religious ritual, and there's still religious elements to it. So this is the festival of San Juan, and the festival involves processions from the, the village church to the venue of the, where the firewalking takes place. But a lot of people will say that they're not even religious. They just do it because it's part of their tradition. Similarly to the Greek fireworking rituals, its origins are lost in time. We know in both cases that these rituals are, have been happening for a few centuries, at least. Now in Spain, there are theories about Celtic, Iberian origins. Again, we have no hard evidence to back up those uh, theories. And finally, in Mauritius, uh, those rituals are possibly the most ancient of the ones that are studied because they go all the way back to Hindu scriptures like the Vedas. Uh, far walking there is typically related to the worship of the mother, mother goddess, Mariamman or, or Kali, one of her many forms. And it's also connected to specific myths about Kali experiencing many different hardships as a young girl and then having to, to walk across fire to, to prove purity and chastity. So they, we don't have any evidence of connections between those different firewalking traditions. And, and in fact, we find firewalking in many places around the world. Uh, but at the same time, there, there are structural similarities that perhaps speak to, to the way people express themselves across cultures. So when we think about how ancient many of these rituals are and how deeply meaningful they are, I'm curious, do you believe that there is a relationship between ritual behavior and re reproductive success? And also, could we invoke evolutionary theory to maybe understand these behaviors better? Absolutely. So first of all, uh, the first thing to say is that there is continuity in the animal kingdom, more than what we often like to acknowledge. And in recent decades, people are more willing to talk about this continuity. Um, think of how when Jane Goodall came back from the field and from the, for the first time, she talked about uh, chimps using tools um, or referred to these chimps as having personalities and even gave them names and pronouns. Other primatologists were, were livid about this. They thought that this was uh, anthropomorphizing them and they, they thought it was not appropriate to, to attribute any kind of agency to chimps. Well, today we know that a lot of the things that we, we used to consider uniquely humans 
uh, we share with many different animals. And of course, why wouldn't we? There's continuity in nature. From an evolutionary perspective, this has to be the case, and this is what we see. Even even crows can can make tools, we know now. Similarly with ritual, I think the more we look, the more we understand that this is not a uniquely human behavior. Of course, we know about rituals in birds, but in recent decades, we've uh, realized that elephants have um, sophisticated um, death rituals, behaviors associated with death and, and apparently mourning. Chimps recently have been found to, to do things like stacking uh, stones and, and visiting specific trees to drum on their, on their trunks. And all sorts of ritual behaviors happen in the, in the animal world. So I think there's continuity, let's say. Now, the, the other part of your question has to do with reproductive success. And again, I think uh, definitely, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. One way to think about it would be to, to look at one of the, the most common ritualized behaviors historically and, and cross-culturally, and that's dancing. It's, you know, one of the most common places to hook up would be the dance, the dance floor in any culture. Another way to think about this uh, would be to look at specific rituals. Think, uh, for example, about the, um, some of the, the rituals of the Maasai who engage in these collective dances that involve jumping as high as you can. And in this context, young girls will, will observe and pick out the best dancers uh, who will become their mates. And you have the equivalent of those rituals in the, uh, in the high kick, which is performed by female dancers uh, throughout parts of Africa. We also have some evidence from my own uh, research that we collected in uh, Mauritius. So we did the study where we, we created dating profiles where we were able to manipulate background information. And so the only information we manipulated had to do with ritual participation. And we showed those dating profiles to both uh, young unmarried women in Mauritius, but also the parents of young unmarried women. And we found that there's a preference for those who partake in rituals among both the girls and their parents. But we also found that the parents specifically, they, uh, they prefer um, men who engage in, in more intense rituals as their potential in-laws. Fascinating. So I'm going to advertise, to, to, toot my own horn, toot our horn, because this is affiliated with AJHB. Uh, but my, my uh, doctoral advisor, Larry Schell, and I are working up a special issue of American Journal of Human Biology on religion and, and human biology. And you are, uh, I hope, working on a paper to contribute. Our we're working on one. Our deadline's coming up. And I wonder if you can give us a teaser if anything you just said there will be in the paper that you're working on for that issue. And I and I will say this is a specific effort to sort of start mending some of these. It's not even about the Cartesian dualism. It's that some of these superstructures that influence human all human life have been left out of the human biology and human adaptability program for like 50 years. So it's it's long overdue that we start to uh, engage in these conversations. So what can uh, listeners and, and readers look forward to from you in that issue? It's funny you should ask that because I was working on this paper right before I jumped into this chat. Me and too. actually the, <laughs> the analysis on the on the background on my on my screen. I can I can I can look at it right now. So for this paper, we looked at um, patterns of emotional contagion in a religious ritual in Mauritius. This is this is not the um, the original idea that I proposed, but it's actually some brand new data that we have analyzed um, in the 
in the types of rituals that I've been studying in Mauritius, there are a lot of structural similarities among the, especially the high arousal ones. So you have practices like fire walking and body piercing and what they call sword climbing, la marche sabre, which is, involves um, walking on the edges of knives. All of these rituals have, um, that are of Southern Indian origin uh, they have some structural similarities. So they, they begin with people going to a body of water, that could be a, a beach or a riverbank or a lake, performing purification rituals, and then engaging in this long procession until they reach their destination. And typically there, they also have to, to engage in some more hardships, which that's, that would involve the, the fire walking or the walking on, uh, on knives. And during these processions, I've always thought that... Um, observing those processions, I could see emotions spread like wildfire. Those processions involve altered states of consciousness, and there's a lot of um, crying and screaming and, and dancing, those kinds of behaviors. And I could see that when the first person begins to, to cry, then a person near them is more likely to, to start crying, and that will, that will move like a wave back and forth. So for this paper, we tried to quantify this, and we measured physiological reactions. We looked at electrodermal activity, and we also used GPS to map people's position in the uh, procession. And we do see that um, the closer you are to someone, the more likely it is that your emotions will match your levels of arousal. I am so excited by that. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that in there. That sounds awesome gps that's really cool it reminds me um I, I, i'll hand the floor the microphone back to, to courtney but it definitely reminds me of my dissertation work with pentecostal congregations and and hearing one person start to speak in tongues and the way it then just just splashes around and 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 flows out so i'm gonna have to look real closely at those methods no it's incredibly fascinating and yeah i'm very excited for this special issue so we could go on forever, but to wrap things up, speaking of AJHB, the Human Biology Association used to actually have a talent show at its annual meeting that we would like to resurrect. And if we could convince you to attend an HBA meeting, what talent would you show us on a fun <laughs> note? <laughs> I don't have many artistic talents, uh, talents but I would, uh, I would probably have to go with photography. I, I am a passionate photographer, and especially in the field, I have tens of thousands of pictures. And some of them are, are from very colorful and extravagant and often very painful rituals. So I think I would have quite a lot to show you. That'd be a lot of fun and probably less painful than having to splash hot coals out on the floor and walk over those to show what your field work is like. Yes, let's not do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we want to thank you. Uh, it's been a long time coming, as I sort of hinted at. We've uh, your book's great. Uh, folks should buy it. Obviously, uh, from what I hear, the Audible is awesome. Also, uh, now that you have heard his voice, is it? What did you read your Audible book, Demetrius? I, I asked her no, what no, the I'm accent not was. So I, yeah. I specifically, I specifically requested somebody with a British accent. <laughs> so, folks, you guys can find that anywhere good books are sold audible for that um how can folks find out more about your work if they want to you got great website here uh called zygolatus.com is there any other mechanisms to get in touch with you and find out about your work well, you, want you know there's a there's a big advantage to having a very very rare last name so if you type in my last name you will find it 
Yes. There, there's no doubt about this. And that is X-Y-G-A-L-A-T-A-S for those of you not familiar with Greek pronunciations of letters. We have been the Sausage of Science. We're affiliated with the Human Bio Association, and you can find us on Twitter at HumBioAssoc. We're now on Spotify as well as on SoundCloud and iTunes. I have been Chris Lynn. You can find me on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. Courtney, what about you? I'm on X as Holy Late Holy. That's right. It's called X now. Thank you so much. Demetrius, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much. And I hope that you and I get to see each other somewhere sometime soon because we have a lot of shop to talk. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Take care.